A great saber-toothed cat crouches stealthily at the edge of the low brush, peering across the open plains to the west. Below him, the ground slopes gradually down to the windswept bottom of a barren limestone steppe, where the cold, dry wind whistles across a dune-filled landscape and is broken only occasionally by small stands of oak trees. Far away, a band of mastodon trudge slowly across the plains. They have wandered too far into this arid wasteland and are thirsty. They march in silent determination towards the ridge, hoping to find a watering hole amid the pockmarked limestone outcrop. As they near the ridge, one young mastodon, suffering from exhaustion and dehydration, begins to fall behind. The big cat licks his chops. His pupils widen. He has also wandered further than he should have into this desolate landscape and hasn't eaten for days. His mouth waters as he eyes his prey, unwittingly approaching closer and closer. His hind legs twitch, timing the moment to spring into action as the herd of giant pachyderms reaches the foot of the ridge. Suddenly, a spear flies out of nowhere and lodges itself in the cat's ribs. A piercing shriek erupts into the air, the mastodon cry out in a startled panic and take off in a stampede. As their thundering footsteps recede into the distance, another sharpened spear whizzes into the tiger's neck. In a desperate panic, the giant cat claws and swipes at the weapons before turning to run into the dense shrubbery of the ridge. He runs for a long time, a trail of red tracing out his path. But as the world around him begins to blur, his pace slows. His feet begin to drag. He stumbles as his strength fails him, then collapses, panting heavily as the world around him fades away. The humans take their time catching up to him. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 2, The Three Souls. Now, we've taken a bit of creative license with this scene that we've just described. But something like this may well have taken place in the vicinity of the Miami Zoo, on the western edge of the Miami Rock Ridge. The archaeological record leaves no doubt that enormous beasts roamed Miami long ago. In 1985, the Cutler Fossil Site, a sinkhole discovered deep in the woods surrounding the Deering Estate, was found to contain layer after layer of animal remains dating from this time, including saber-toothed cat and mastodon bones. 
But on top of those bones, the fossil record of the Cutler site shows clear signs of human habitation, beginning some 15,000 years ago, just as the Ice Age was coming to an end. These were the first humans to set foot on the Miami Rock Ridge. After generations of nomadic hunting, following the enormous animals that ruled the Ice Age across the North American continent and down into the southern tip of the Florida Peninsula. The cold planet Earth had packed its water away into the towering glaciers that covered so much of the world at the time, and the sea level was 300 feet lower than it is today. Where Biscayne Bay is, there was nothing but a barely noticeable depression in the flat surroundings, and to the west, there was a desolate expanse as far as the eye could see. In these endless flat plains of South Florida, the Eulitic Miami Rock Ridge, rising a mere dozen or so feet above its surroundings, was nevertheless a comparatively prominent vantage point from which inhabitants could keep an eye on approaching trouble and passing prey. The climate and the landscape did not make for a particularly welcoming environment. For one thing, fresh water on the surface was hard to come by. But over time, the ridge became a safe haven for Florida's paleo-natives, who came from the north and ventured down the length of this narrow outcrop, hunting the likes of mammoth, mastodon, giant sloth, giant beaver, and maybe even saber-toothed cat. This long-ago period of time is something that we can only measure in the thousands of years. And it is for thousands of years that these earliest Miamians lived the life of big-game hunters. But as the frozen earth slowly began to thaw, the climate in Florida began a long and dramatic transformation. By 9,000 years ago, the ice caps were receding and the sea had begun its steady rise. Slowly but surely, the South Florida climate became warmer and wetter. The western half of the Florida platform, which had been almost completely dry land, fell beneath the waves. Entire settlements were lost forever to the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. The east coast of Florida moved a few miles inland as well. By 5,000 years ago, the Earth had completed its metamorphosis. The climate in Miami by this time was essentially what it is today, a tropical monsoon climate with distinct wet and dry seasons. The sea level had stabilized at its present elevation, and the modern-day outline of the Florida Peninsula had taken shape. Water had begun to slowly inundate the low interior plains to form the Everglades, and Biscayne Bay had filled up too. Now, of course, during these half-dozen millennia, as Florida underwent its momentous transformation, its human inhabitants underwent a transformation of their own. Although in the short span of a human life, these changes must have been utterly imperceptible, the way of life in Florida shifted ever so slightly with each passing generation. By 11,000 years ago, 
the large game upon which the Paleo-Miamians depended began to find the world an unwelcoming place. And one by one, the biggest of the Ice Age megafauna went the way of the dodo. But the warmer and wetter climate allowed life to flourish across the once barren landscape. Now, to be sure, the animals that could now be hunted were smaller, but people incorporated more plants into their diet, and a proliferation of clams, conchs, and sea turtles in the warmer waters saw many of these hunter-gatherer communities turn gradually to fishing for sustenance. By the time the Earth's thaw was complete, the increasing abundance of food and water had allowed people to stay put in South Florida for longer periods of time. They didn't have to chase their food around as they once did. It's around this time that we see the first evidence of a more permanent lifestyle, and we begin to find the earliest tools in the archaeological record. But the people of the Miami Rock Ridge didn't have access to the more durable types of rock and minerals that made for great tools elsewhere in the world. Instead, they turned to what they did have in abundance, seashells. And shells of all shapes and sizes were used to make axes, chisels, scrapers, picks, and even screws. Around 2,500 years ago, right around the time the Roman Republic was getting going half a world away, we see the first clear evidence of differentiation between the cultures of South Florida and those further north on the peninsula. These early South Floridians are known as the Glades people, and they were surrounded by water, with the sea on one side and wetlands on the other. They lived mainly on the Miami Rock Ridge and on the Imokalee Ridge on the west coast, but there is clear evidence that they traversed the Everglades regularly, giving rise to cultural quirks entirely different from the people who lived north of Lake Okeechobee. In time, the Glades people developed a rich culture and highly organized society. Pottery started to become more and more decorative, tools more sophisticated, and religious artifacts began to appear at burial sites. But over the course of the last 2,500 years, the Western Glades people, those populating the Imokalee Ridge, came to dominate their South Florida cousins to the east. The West Coast had much more dry land than the smaller Miami Ridge, and so the Western population came to dwarf the population on the east. Around the area of modern-day Fort Myers, the sheltered waters of Charlotte Harbor and Estero Bay were rich with abundant shellfish, a plentiful source of nutrition that the East Coast had relatively little of. Eventually, the natural advantages of the West led those people to become the most powerful tribe in South Florida, both militarily and politically. They were called the Calusa and their power projected across the full width of the peninsula and well north of Lake Okeechobee, almost as far as Cape Canaveral by some accounts. The Calusa ruled over many smaller tribes, like the Jaega people who lived around modern-day West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale, and the Miami, 
who lived all around Lake Okeechobee. They were talented canal builders, and their name eventually floated down the waters of the Everglades to become the namesake of our fair city. But where the actual city of Miami stands today, and all along the shores of Biscayne Bay, were the Tequesta. Like their Calusa relatives, the Tequesta lived off the sea. They ate fish, sea turtles, shark, and even manatee. But what they lacked in the way of shellfish, they made up for with the native plants of the hammock. In particular, the root of the kunti plant, which can be ground into a type of flower. The Tequesta built their largest villages around the mouths of the shallow rivers that drained into Biscayne Bay, including the Miami River. And they had smaller settlements that dotted the inland pine rocklands and the sandy barrier islands just off the coast. One thing we see common to all these South Florida tribes is mound building. These guys would pile earth into great embankments, on top of which important religious or political structures were placed. The Calusa, however, took the practice a step further. They built countless man-made islands right in the middle of the water. These were major feats of construction that are really testaments to their great power and ingenuity. Many islands hosted large villages, and in fact, the Calusa capital city was built on one such man-made island in Estero Bay. This island is known today as Mound Key, where visitors can still stumble across seashells, animal bones, and bits of broken pottery that were left behind by the Calusa. On the Miami side, the Tequesta built numerous large mounds too. Many lasted for hundreds of years, and in fact, photographs from the Flagler Railroad's earliest days still show Tequesta mounds in what is now the heart of downtown. These, of course, were soon leveled by developers and are now nowhere to be seen. But in 1998, the indelible mark of the Tequesta was discovered at the mouth of the Miami River, not piled onto a mound, but rather carved into the bedrock of its southern bank. During preparations for construction of a hot new brickle high-rise, a routine archaeological survey revealed 24 holes cut directly into the oolite, and laid out in a perfect circle 38 feet across. The site, dubbed the Miami Circle, quickly became embroiled in controversy, pitting luxury condo developers against preservationists in a classic Miami showdown. In the end, the preservationists prevailed, and the site, thankfully, remains intact. Archaeologists determined that the holes secured wooden pillars that supported a large elevated structure. Several artifacts were uncovered that indicate a ceremonial purpose, including a shark skeleton aligned exactly east to west, a dolphin skull, a complete sea turtle shell, and two stone head axes. Now, these stone axes were a particularly stunning discovery. They weren't made of limestone, which is the only type of stone that exists in Florida. Instead, 
analysis revealed that they were carved out of rocks from the area of Macon, Georgia, more than 500 miles away. They can only have reached Biscayne Bay through an extensive trade network, and they would have been extremely rare and extremely valuable. Yet, they were found in pristine condition in the middle of the Miami Circle, indicating a very special purpose to the activities that took place in this ancient structure. Radiocarbon dating indicates that the Miami Circle was carved sometime between 1800 and 2000 years ago. This is a powerful juxtaposition. Beneath the towers of one of the youngest major cities in the U.S., lies one of the oldest uncovered settlements on the whole east coast of the United States. The Miami Circle can be visited today at a park next to the Icon high-rise condo. Although the site itself has been preserved, it is marked only by a plaque and a bit of unceremonious pavement surrounding the circle. We hope that one day, the powers that be will see fit to make a proper exhibit and memorial out of this great testament to the original Miamians. And so, the sun rose on the Tequesta and set on the Calusa. The tribes of South Florida were in regular contact with one another, primarily via routes through the Everglades. A trip through this wilderness is quite a harrowing feat by any standard. At some places, the swamp is more than 50 miles across, and for much of it, there's not a square inch of dry land for miles. And the water teems with alligators and other predators hiding in the murky depths. Yet despite the difficulty of traversing the Everglades, the Tequesta and Calusa maintained a strong connection. They were expert canoe builders and navigators, familiar with the best routes across the swamp, and many of the small tree islands that were spread out across the water hosted shelters where travelers could camp at night. Although conflicts were certainly not unheard of, Tequesta had a generally friendly relationship with the Calusa. As long as the Tequesta didn't step out of line, they were free to do as they pleased on the shores of Biscayne Bay. They were, after all, descended from the same people and shared an unshakable cultural bond handed down from their Glades period forebears. Perhaps most symbolic of this common origin is a unique shared religious perspective, forged from a world immersed in water, a world of blazing hot days broken by sudden deluges of rain and fierce storms, a world of cool ocean breezes and neon sunsets in a wide open sky. They said that each of us has three souls, and we hope to uncover each of them as we tell the story of Miami. The first soul is found in one's pupil. We can see it in our neighbors, our teachers, our heroes, and our villains when we look one another in the eye. The second soul is found in one's shadow. It is revealed in our own outline on a cloudless day, 
when we find ourselves tested by the sun on the hot cement of the sidewalk or the sandy dunes of the beach. The third soul is revealed by the water that surrounds us on all sides. We see it when we peer over the edge of our boat or kayak on a calm day, or when we're standing knee-deep in the swamp. The third soul is found in our own reflection. It is clearest when the water is still, and undulates when the water is troubled. But when it is revealed, we can, for once, look back at ourselves. This was the religion of the Calusa and Tequesta. But I like to think of it as a philosophy that could only have been conceived in a place like Miami. <laughs>